0: Cyberbit is offering Cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at Cyberbit.com/slash Cyberwire. Louisiana recovers from a ransomware attack against state servers. North Korea appears to still be interested in Indian industry. Compromise CMS is distributing info-stealing Trojans, Hyde 7 mounts across platform spearfishing campaign, Macy's and Magecart, thoughts on supply chain security and cyber deterrence, and some legal updates, including some alleged academic money laundering. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 19th, 2019. There's a good news, bad news story out of Louisiana today. The bad news is that the Pelican State was hit by a ransomware attack yesterday. What variety of ransomware isn't yet known, but the incident is believed to be similar to the one that hit school districts in Morehouse, Sabine, Monroe City, and Wachita this past July. A number of state agencies and services were affected, including, bleeping computer reports, all 79 of Louisiana's Office of Motor Vehicles locations. The good news is that the state's Cybersecurity Commission, established in 2017 against just this sort of eventuality, was activated and appears to have been working effectively to contain and remediate the damage. The commission includes law enforcement personnel, cybersecurity professionals from both the public and private sector, and academic specialists. Affected agencies began restoring service soon after the attack hit. Recovery is expected to be substantially complete in about two days. The Office of Motor Vehicles, for example, thinks it will be back in business this afternoon, KPLC reports. ZDNet says the state's Office of Technology Services contained the infestation quickly and that the commission took appropriate action. None of this would have been possible without effective preparation. It's still early to call victory, but so far it does seem that Louisiana, unlike too many other state and local governments, had a sound plan that's been executing effectively. An after-action review with lessons learned that might be shared with other states would be interesting, and we hope Louisiana's Cybersecurity Commission holds one and publishes the results. India continues to receive the attention of North Korean cyber operators. A phishing campaign is underway that poses as a job opportunity at Hindustan Aeronautics, the Herald publicist says. Little else has been reported, but the Lazarus group seems to have been leaving its spore across the subcontinent recently, with incidents reported at both the Kudan Kulam nuclear power facility and the Indian Space Research Organization. Zscaler has discovered two campaigns that use compromised WordPress sites to distribute a remote access Trojan. Malicious redirector scripts in the compromised content management systems do the work. One campaign uses a bogus flash player update as the vector. The other deploys an equally phony font updater. The font it helpfully offers to update is P.T. Sans. The payload is essentially an information stealer. We often address the serious issue of insider threats, the vulnerabilities your organization faces from employees or close partners. There are many technical countermeasures to insider threats, but it's important to remember there's a human side to this as well. Tom Miller is CEO at employee risk management firm ClearForce.
1: The earlier that an organization can become aware of issues, the more options they have to address those issues, hopefully in a positive and productive way. But one of the challenges of early discovery is you have to make sure in every case that you're carefully protecting the rights of the employee and the privacy of the individual. And so privacy and civil liberties really need to be the foundation for any type of insider risk or employee risk management program. Once you start from that, then you're in a position to uh, have a shared objective between the workforce and leadership within the organization to really create a more safe and secure environment.
0: Yeah, I think nobody likes to have that feeling that someone's always looking over their shoulder. Um, how do you establish that uh, the sort of culture of security without it feeling adversarial?
1: Well, and I think in today's workplace, uh, there is a basic requirement for organizations to deliver safety and security to their employees. We just see and hear so many negative and violent acts that occur uh, both inside and outside the workplace that I think there's a, a basic assumption today that when you go to work, your employer will take the appropriate steps to keep you safe and secure. And so when you start from that, perspective, then it becomes much easier as an organization to really put together uh, the kind of approach and the kind of policy and technology to, to achieve that objective. And again, I go back to transparency. Often capturing and making sure that you've got explicit consent from your employees to be able to evaluate certain information about uh, misconduct, about criminal activity as examples become really important. Typically, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Different jobs, different positions lend themselves to different levels of physical and information access inside virtually every organization. And so, from an employer's perspective, it's really important to create your policy and define those risk policies specific to each job role and not try to come up with a, you know, an overarching Uh, single solution across the board
0: are there any typical red flags that that stand out to it where that uh, you know an employer should say hey perhaps uh, this employee needs a
1: little more of my attention it really is identifying this disengaged individual Hmm. and what we find time and again is when somebody becomes disengaged whether it's from their job or quite frankly in the community if you become disengaged and nobody notices, then bad things tend to happen. And so from an employer's perspective, you have to find these uh, early indicators that that employee that you brought into the organization, a trusted, productive part of the corporate organization, all of a sudden has issues. They have stress. They have problems either inside or outside of work that have created this situation. And so you know, oftentimes that can range from arguments or problems that they're having with their colleagues so let's say internal incidents uh, perhaps it's with customers perhaps it's with coworkers. Uh, but having an efficient and effective way of having those incidents communicated into leadership becomes really important perhaps another common indicator would be identifying individuals that are under financial stress and so for an organization to be able to then pair employee assistance programs, counseling, or other wellness opportunity, uh, again, is a good opportunity to um, create a positive outcome through some preemptive action.
0: That's Tom Miller from Clearforce. U.S. Department store giant Macy's is the latest retailer to suffer a data breach. Computing, Bleeping Computer, and others are calling the incident a mage card attack. Macy's mailed breach disclosures to affected customers on November 14th. The compromised information includes customers' first and last names, complete physical address, phone number, email address, pay card number and security code, and pay card expiration month and year. Macy's says it believes it's unlikely someone could open an account in a customer's name, but it's warning people to stay alert. The department store chain has brought in an unnamed security company to assist with investigation and remediation – and it says it's engaged law enforcement as well. Fifth Domain quotes a senior U.S. Marine general on an interesting question. Who has more to lose if cyber deterrence moves toward a counter-value balance, authoritarian or open societies? Lieutenant General Eric Smith, head of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command, suggested at a recent AFCEA meeting that it's the former. In some respects, he may have a point. Consider networked surveillance cameras. They occupy a much bigger, more important place in Chinese national policy than they do in American national life. Would taking them out be irritating? Sure. But crashing them in China would be more seriously disruptive. Of course, a cyber attack that took down a power grid or a nation's financial system would be a disaster, much worse than just getting your hair mussed. So perhaps this perspective on deterrence works best at the lower to mid-ranges of the spectrum of conflict— up at the levels that the nuclear deterrence think tanks used to call spasm war, or as Major King Kong put it in the movie Dr. Strangelove.
1: Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies.
0: Speaking of cyber conflict, Huawei has received a 90-day reprieve from the U.S. as the government continues to work toward the ejection of Huawei gear from U.S. networks. China hawks are concerned that the U.S. administration has gone wobbly, the Washington Post reports, but in any case, this is going to be a long dance. And finally, two stories of crime and punishment. First, Sweden is discontinuing its investigation of WikiLeaks' impresario Julian Assange for alleged sexual offenses, accusation of which prompted Mr. Assange to decamp to the U.K. in 2010. The Swedish prosecution authority says that, quote, "...the evidence has weakened considerably due to the long period of time that has elapsed since the events in question." The Register reports that Mr. Assange, long resident in Ecuador's London embassy until his ejection earlier this year, remains in British custody at Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh in southeast London. The U.S. has asked that he be extradited to face charges of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. As the Register puts it in their lead... U.S. Department of Justice books one-way plane ticket in his name. And second, in what sounds allegedly like either a case of physician heal thyself or one cannot touch, pitch, and remain undefiled, a Miami academic, an expert on money laundering, has been charged in the U.S. with laundering money from the failed state of Venezuela, allegedly pocketing a cool quarter of a million greenbacks for his troubles on behalf of clients trafficking in dirty money. Bruce Bagley, age 73, is a professor of international studies at the University of Miami. He's been a frequently quoted expert on money laundering and drug cartels. The University of Miami's only comment has been to say that Professor Bagley is on administrative leave. We note that Professor Bagley, like Mr. Assange, is entitled to the presumption of innocence. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's the Program Director for Public Policy and External Affairs at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. More importantly, he is my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Good to be here, Dave. Ben, you and I are going to talk today about strip clubs. Now, I know you and I have run into each other many times at the local strip club. Yeah, I'm supposed to say
2: that live, <laughs> live on the podcast. Yeah.
0: Actually, before we recorded, you you and I were both saying how uh, we sort of scratch our heads and don't really understand the appeal of strip clubs. But that's a whole other thing. This, yes. We, we're talking today you about... You hear about
2: that on our, our private podcast.
0: Right, exactly. Um, but today we're talking about an interesting legal case... Uh, this was from Bloomberg Law, and uh, the title of the article is Strip Club Cases Show How Little Your Image is Protected Online. What's going on here?
2: So this case arises from 11 plaintiffs. They are they are models. Ten of them you would have never have heard of. The 11th is Carmen Electra. Oh, I've heard of her. Uh, which, you know, if you were alive in the mid-2000s, you've probably heard of her. She was on Baywatch. She was on Baywatch. Yeah. She was married, I believe, to Dennis Rodman. They sued a strip club and their cause of action was under what's called the Lanham Act, uh, particularly the false endorsement provision of the Lanham Act. So basically what happened is the strip club found online photos of these individuals in uh, like cat costumes and other like suggestive photos and used them to promote events at their strip club. Uh, And this violates the statute, the Lanham Act, which prevents companies from using one's personal likeness. For advertising purposes, without that person's authorization.
0: So, so these were photos that these people had posted online of themselves. So that it wasn't like the the strip club broke into someone's phone to gather these images. No, it was like somebody
2: took a a Facebook picture of a sexy costume and posted it on their own Facebook page, and then the strip club, in order to promote the event, took this photo without the consent of of the models themselves. Now. Even though the rest of these models weren't Carmen Electra, uh, it seems from from what we can glean about the case that they all did have significant social media following. So they're sort of social media celebrities, if not right. real celebrities. Okay. What was interesting is that only Carmen Electra was actually able to succeed. She won uh, the case, the ban against the strip club from using her image. And one of the reasons she won is because her image is actually worth something because she's a famous person. Mm. That's sort of the nature of uh, the Lanham Act is, it's very difficult for a normal person, somebody who's not famous to reclaim one's image once it gets on the internet, because the Lanham Act is specifically about commercializing somebody's image. And if that image doesn't have any commercial value, then you're generally in most cases going to be barred from uh, recovery. Now, there are other courts um, that are a little more lenient in these cases. They talk about, uh, uh, in this article, courts that don't actually try to gouge the plaintiff's fame, and they only look about whether a company like the strip club would intend to commercialize uh, somebody's persona, so somebody's online images. But you know, when we're dealing with the Lanham Act, uh, it's going to be very difficult for a, a non-famous person who, who doesn't already have a commercial presence, a commercial image, uh, to gain relief, and I think that's scary for people. You know, for one, it's a reminder that posting images online is is not safe, no matter the privacy protections, the specific social media application that you're using. Just think, once the image is out there, it's it's really hard to reclaim it. You're going to be compensated uh, if you win this type of case based on. Your own commercial value. So if you don't have any commercial value, there's not going to be much compensation. Which means it's not really going to be worth it for somebody to pursue a lawsuit. Now you can talk about intangible things like you know effects to your reputation. Right. But if you're you know a person who doesn't have any commercial fame, then that it's hard to put a dollar amount on that uh, that hit to one's reputation. Yeah. And downstream from that is it's going to be very difficult for plaintiffs' attorneys or not difficult, but plaintiffs' attorneys are are going to be reluctant to take up one of these cases because the contingency fees aren't really going to be worth it for them uh, if there's not a lot of money at stake. So you know, I, I think that's a big problem with our our right of publicity statutes now that we're in a digital age and more people are becoming internet famous. You know, this law was was drafted in an era where. This was 1946, so television was just coming into <laughs> prominence. Uh, right, probably right, most famous right. people, um, were – the in.
0: internet was not even a gleam in someone's eye. So no, far. It, was it was not. Uh, yeah, futurists were probably wondering about sharing images. Yeah, <laughs>
2: so per, you know, perhaps we need to have more robust legislation that protects uh, people's online integrity and protects uh, those somebody's images that they post on their s- own social media. Whether they're famous or not, they can have a a cause of action against a company who tries to use that photo for commercial purposes.
0: Yeah, that is – it's really interesting that uh, that this – I guess I never considered that a picture that you put out there could be used in a commercial situation and you have very
2: little uh, relief against that. What about even just a copyright claim? The copyright claim applies to creative work. So it would be like somebody who actually took the photo – I and see. posted it on social media for creative purposes, you can't appropriate that for commercial value. Huh. This is generally a trademarks case where the value is not necessarily artistic or creative, but it's in the commercial value of mm. the image itself. I see. Yeah, I mean, it's scary that there there isn't more recourse. Uh, yeah. Uh, particularly when, you know, you think about instances where somebody's photo is, is posted without their consent. And, you know, that's particularly scary to a lot of people.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security